Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week our guest is the Congressman from Pennsylvania and the ranking Democrat on the House Budget Committee, Brendan Boyle. Remember, we love taking your questions. So write in to politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. Now we'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to our sponsors, Miracle Made and Beam in the show notes. We thank you for supporting them. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, James, I've been in this town for a long time, and I've watched a number of congressional scandals uh, abusing their power on the take. New Orleans, Congressman William Jefferson stashing cash in a refrigerator. Nevada Senator John Anson, Anson getting his parents to pay off a mistress so she wouldn't talk about bribes. Super lobbyist Jack Abramoff bribing everything that walked. But I'll tell you, the case that the Southern District brought this week against New Jersey, Senator Robert Menendez, may be the granddaddy of corruption if it's proven. Uh, he and his girlfriend, uh, later wife, concocted a scheme to help the Egyptian government and some of their lobbyists. And in return, got thousands of dollars in cash and gold bullions and gold bars, rather, and a and, and, and Mercedes, and the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee even turned over secret national security information to Egypt. In response, Menendez, who was forced to step down as chairman, said the $480,000 the FBI found stashed away in his house, that was just you know a rainy day fund that he kept around. I don't want to get caught in that downpour. He is innocent until proven guilty. That does not mean that does not mean that he deserves to stay in the Senate. Uh, he has a very checkered, unsavory uh, uh, career. He's been was indicted before, got off on a hung jury. Uh, and uh, he, if, if any of the stuff in this thing is proven, and some of it is, they have emails, they have texts, uh, he does not deserve to stay in the Senate. Chuck Schumer needs to move right away to set up a process, give him, let him make his case, and I predict he'll be gone by Thanksgiving probably sooner. This is a test for the Senate, which several years ago rushed to judgment and kicked out Al Franken unfairly, as the great Jane Mayer chronicled in The New Yorker. That should not give Senator pause, Senator's pause in this case, as it is so night and day different. And finally, I hope the media will now, t- every time the Jim Jordans in the world talk about this Justice Department as being partisan and unfair, will say that's a lie. Merrick Garland has already approved a special counsel on Joe Biden, the indictment of his son, Hunter, and an indictment of a powerful Democratic senator. James, maybe my memory feeling me, I don't recall the Trump Justice Department doing any such thing to Republicans. <laughs> of course you don't. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, to go back to where we started on all of this, he said that the rainy day fund, somebody said he said he got an ATM machine. How do you get $484,000 out of it? How many times you got to go to the ATM machine to get that much cash out? <laughs> I, mean, I think you only get like 500 a shot. So that's 484 times two. Uh, that's, a, that's, that's, a, that's a lot of ATM machine trips. 
And you're right. You have the presumption of innocence, and what he should they should do is he should resign and says, "When I'm found not guilty, I'm going to run for the Senate again and get reelected, and that'll be great." In the meantime, the the walls are closing in on him, and when you think of potential people that Governor Phil Murphy may nominate, if that choice comes to him, don't discount his wife. Yeah, and I think that's a bad idea. Uh, I really think it's a bad idea. It hasn't worked in the past. New Jersey has never had a female uh, senator, and I think it's time for one. My first choice would be Mikey Sherrill, a very, very uh, uh, accomplished congresswoman from northern New Jersey. There might be others. I'm sure Phil Murphy's wife has done a lot of good things, but, you know, she hasn't done anything that deserves a Senate appointment. And uh, yeah. if he wants to appoint her as a caretaker because the election is up next year, that's fine. But I think this is a very ambitious man, and I think he would hurt his ambitions if he did that. Well, I, I, again, I, I, I would not take her out of consideration. And I, no, I would not. That. Uh, in, you're right, it, it, it hasn't made it yet because so far – been resigned. I don't know. How, it, it, does it expose the Christian Gillibrands? Well, I mean, time just remember needs to be exposed for the, the horrific and, and with a lot of people going on with along with it, uh, getting Al Franken to resign for frankly no good reason at all. Absolutely made up by some political enemies. It's just made up thing. That, and of course, the stupid Democrats walk right into it and said, "Well." I don't know. It'll help us campaign on the issue. It didn't do anything for us. Well, anybody who doubts that, James, James, ought to read Jane Mayer's New Yorker piece. No one has been tougher on the Me Too culprits than Jane Mayer. And she went and looked at the Franken case and said, hey, this was a rush to judgment. It was unfair. And a number of senators who rushed to judgment now admit they were wrong. I don't think there's any such danger in the Menendez case. Yeah, I, I, I don't either. Uh, and going back to my Mikey Sherrill, Mikey Sherrill wants to run for governor in 25, which some of the New Jersey papers have said that's fine. If not, there could not be a better appointment uh, to the to the United States Senate. And I don't think Menendez probably is going to have that option of running for a seat if he resigns, James, because this trial, the primary is next June, I think, or May. And, and this trial is not going to be one that takes just, you know, three or four months. So right. I don't think so. I, look, I, and, you know, he got a hung jury one time before when it's not good to talk to government. And uh, I, I, I'll just say he, he does have a new wife. And, I'm, you know, I'm a big believer in this as, a, as with Governor Murphy. And I, I, I think that Senator Menendez's new wife is uh, wrapped up in this in a pretty substantial way, at least according to the documents that yeah. we've been privy to. Uh, it, 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 you'll go broke fast in life betting against anybody's spouse is one of my basic rules. Yeah, well, he may go broke betting with uh, his new spouse. Yeah. But uh, anyway, no, she was deeply involved. And he did, he was the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee who gave secrets, sensitive secret, you know, security documents he gave to the Egyptians. Uh, yeah. that's, 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 just that's, to, to be precise, and I don't know exactly what you're saying, he is alleged to have done this. But well, that's <laughs> the true. This one, they have emails. Right. I understand. And I text, understand. Which, I understand. Which, which I understand. Still got him. Uh, again, he, he said he had the 484000 He was just kept it in 
the lining of his coat for a rainy day. You know, I, I, uh, James, I, let's, let's, let's go up there and see if we can find that ATM machine because maybe they, I mean, the thing must be worn out. I can tell you that. My <laughs> limit, too, is $500. I mean, maybe we can get a higher limit. I don't know, but he had he had to go to a lot of – I told my daughter last night, her and my wife couldn't – y'all, if I could get y'all, even y'all couldn't do that. They could draw <laughs> money out of anything. <laughs> James, speaking of crooks, a okay. new judge this week ruled that businessman Donald Trump consistently committed fraud, submitted false statements to banks and insurance companies, and he he stripped uh, the four times indicted ex-president of some of his properties. The New York Attorney General is going to seek penalties of up to $250 million, maybe more, and perhaps more actions against him. Trump predictably assail the judge, who by all accounts is respected, as, quote, deranged, end quote. Now, this is such a common Trump MO. Earlier, he had said retiring chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, maybe should be executed. Executed. His, Milley's offense was telling the truth about the 45th president and vowing to stand up if he tried to mount a coup. You know, Trump, as you have said, and I have totally agreed, is a career criminal who has gotten away with it uh, both before he was president and during. During, it was the Ukraine shakedown and inciting the January 6th Bion insurrection. Legally, it's finally catching up to him. Now, there's not much evidence yet. It's affecting the MAGA crowd who, who buy this notion that he's a victim, which is pure BS. And I know there's a faction that's always going to be with him, James, but I still think that at some stage, these cumulative blows will start to erode some of his soft support. And I know I've been saying that for months and it hadn't happened, but uh, it just it just continues. You know, to a vast number of people, these events just prove what they've said all alone. Of course, the deep states, blah, blah, blah. But I, I tend to think the accretion of all of these things over a period of time it, it, it's got to have, although I tell you, it's kind of hard to find it right yeah. now. Uh, do remember, remember a, in a court of competent jurisdiction, he's adjudicated to have committed the crime of rape on Fifth Avenue. That's, right. that's a fact. And now he's adjudicated to be, according to a court of competent jurisdiction, a, a business fraud. So he's a rapist and a business fraud, and we're just getting warmed up. We're just getting warmed up, people. We ain't, we're, we're, this, this game has barely begun, and we already got. We already know that he's a legal rapist and a legal business fraud, and we're going to find out a lot more. Yeah. Uh, he, of course, we're we're taping this on Wednesday, and uh, he will not be at the Republican debate, which will take place uh, before this sh uh, program uh, airs. Uh, but um, and I don't think it's going to produce much. However, there is one candidate who at least has the potential, the potential, and it's a reach, to, to challenge him. And I think that's Nikki Haley. She, uh, the only one in that field. The first debate, she did, you know, well. She forged in the second place, strong second place in New Hampshire, well behind Trump, but ahead of all the others. She's tough. When she ran for governor, the old boys didn't like her and circulated stories about sexual affairs. She stood up to them. And one, she came out of Trump's service better than most. But she's going to face the kind of attacks over the next month or so 
from the Roger Stones of the world, the likes of which she's never seen. Uh, and I, um, I'm skeptical that she can stand up to it. But if she does, she, she, may, she may be a, a, you know, a serious challenger, a serious strike back. She may be a real challenger to, to Trump. Well, if, if you saw, and I, I don't want to pay too much attention on one poll question, but in, I guess it was the CNN poll, one of them, it, they had the trial heat against Trump, DeSantis, and, the, and Biden. It was all 47, 47, 48, 48, except for Haley. She was ahead 49, 43. I don't know if yep. I've ever seen an incumbent president 43. Same with the but, NBC poll. But it, it just tells you that if the voters get anything close to something new or fresh, they're going to jump on it like crazy. And I, for the life of me, I'm just watching this process. It it, it looks to like me like it's just you, watching this huge crash envelop right before your eyes. There's nothing you can do about it. But if something, if something were to happen to Trump, which is not impossible, and Haley would be the nominee, we'd be, we would not have a pleasant November. Unless someone like Gretchen Whitmer were running against her. Yeah, well, and it didn't, didn't, you know, hopefully it, it, that would be, we would do fine under that scenario. Yeah. But we're yeah. not going to do fine under her against Biden. Well, uh, you know, I, I, I must say this. I think Biden has more than his share of problems. Uh, I like the fact that he went to the UAW, you know, for only 15 or 20 minutes, but stood solidly with the, with the union. I, I, I really admired that. Yeah, it's great. And by the way, congratulations to the writers. I, I think I'm in SAG, so I, I, but I think we're going to get our deal too, so I don't have to worry about picket lines anymore. And uh, yeah, I think him going to UAW is fine. I don't. It's unclear how much they think it helps, but it, it certainly makes a statement. I don't. I don't have any issue with that at all. I mean, it's time for those guys to get a raise. Okay. Uh, I want to tell those those uh, few Republicans we ha have out there, we were even-handed this week in talking about crooks, Donald Trump's and Robert and Robert Menendez. Uh, I'm not sure we're going to be so even-handed in the future. Hey, James, our guest is Brendan Boyle, the congressman from Philadelphia and the ranking Democrat on the House Budget Committee, who confidently predicts that next year the Democrats will take back the House and he'll become the chairman and the Philadelphia Eagles will win the Super Bowl. But we're going to focus on now, uh, Brendan. Uh, we're taping Wednesday afternoon, but what are the odds that they're going to be a government shutdown by the end of this weekend? Yeah, it's great to be with you guys. Uh, I'm a big uh, fan of, of the podcast and listen every week. Um, I unfortunately have to say, I think there's about a 99% chance that we have a government shutdown come uh, midnight Saturday night. Uh, and let's be clear. I mean, we're going to have a government shutdown because House Republicans want a government shutdown. We've had five government shutdowns in the last 30 years. All five of them happened under House Republicans. Zero happened when Democrats were in charge. I spoke on the floor uh, on Tuesday evening, 
And I cited quotation after quotation from various House Republicans saying that they want a government shutdown. So you don't have to be Columbo to figure out this mystery. And the reality is Kevin McCarthy just cares about one thing, keeping Kevin McCarthy a speaker. So he is he continues to be absolutely beholden to the Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene, MAGA crowd. And he is too afraid to put that Senate continuing resolution up for a vote. It passed the Senate by more than four to one. There's clearly 218 votes to pass in the House. But he's just too afraid to do it because he's afraid about losing his speakership. To coin a Philadelphia Eagle football phrase, he hears footsteps every day. Um, you know, <laughs> What a terrible life. All right, if there is a shutdown that lasts for weeks rather than days, who, who gets hurt? Who gets affected by it? What, what workers, what benefits uh, will be lost? It's not just a shutdown. It's, it's the pain that it causes. Yeah, and, and there's some confusion um, about this. Uh, of course, you know, you have MAGA Republicans saying that there will be no cost to a government shutdown. One of them said people won't miss it. Well, the reality is, if you look at the analysis the Congressional Budget Office has done, the last government shutdown cost us $11 billion to our economy. Um, they also found that 140,000 fewer jobs were created as a result of the shutdown. You'll have much longer than usual TSA lines. You'll have um, upwards of 2 million armed forces and law enforcement officials going to work every day but not getting paid. You'll have national parks that are closed. The military does not get paid. Correct, the military does not get paid. Our uh, border enforcement agencies at the border also don't get paid. Um, in terms of Social Security and Medicare, the good news is those checks continue to go out. However, if you're a new applicant to Medicare or to Social Security, that doesn't get processed. Um, we lost in 2018, which was the 2018-2019 shutdown, which, by the way, the other side loved shutdown so much. Hell, they did it under Republican president, Republican House, and Republican Senate last time. When that took place, 10,000 Medicare applicants a day were denied their application because it couldn't be processed. So, And I could go on and on about 1,200 inspections by FD, uh, by food inspectors that don't take place, all these sorts of things that people rely on. They don't, you know, it's kind of like, and I know all three of us are diehard sports fans. It's kind of like referees. You don't think of referees when they're doing a good job, but then when they blow a call, you really pay attention to the referees. People really pay attention to government when that stuff isn't happening. Right. They sure do. If there is a shutdown of a month or two months, could that throw us into a recession, Brendan? Yeah, Mark Sandy, the chief economist for Moody's, um, recently put out a statement over last weekend because uh, he has, by the way, been kind of in the camp of we're going to have a soft landing. He said he can't rule out a recession mostly because of uh, a government shutdown. A good rule of thumb is that for uh, every month a government shutdown goes by, it shaves about a tenth of a percent off our GDP. Now, when I'm back home and communicating these issues, I I'm not necessarily – talking about it in those terms. What I try to tell people is very simply, there's money that was going to be spent that doesn't get spent, which means then there are companies that aren't creating jobs that otherwise would be creating jobs. And that was the case. Every single one of those last shutdowns I talked about the last 30 years, all cost taxpayers more money and all cost us jobs. 
Do, do, do your constituents understand that? James thought he saw a poll that kind of indicated a mixed view of who was responsible. Uh, but do your constituents understand exactly who's causing this? I think, I think you have to um, talk about when you're doing the polling. So right now, it's funny, just this morning I looked at a poll. It showed roughly 30% of people would blame House Republicans, about 15% of people blame Democrats, and then the rest were somewhere in the unsure or both sides equally. But remember, we're at the front end of this, right? Where will people be two, three, four weeks into this? So I go back to December of 1995 when Bill Clinton was president and was looking at a challenging re-election the next year. Guess what? The beginning of the Bill Clinton comeback was the Gingrich Dole shutdown. He was in a lot stronger position and Democrats were in a lot stronger position at the end of that shutdown than they were at the beginning. If I'm doing my job right and we're doing our job right and we're making sure people understand this shutdown is because Republicans want it, then I think the polls will uh, will move on our side. James? So, so Congressman, generally the, the polls do move on our side in government shutdown. But I, I, I want to tell you what a fear of mine is is these Republicans want this, and they feel like that chaos is their friend. If it's chaos at the border, if it's chaos in the financial markets, if it's chaos in smash and grab, if it's chaos in East Asia or, or Ukraine, they have come to believe as a matter of strategic doctrine that this helps them because the, the president's too old and he can't control anything. And I, I, I think that augurs, augurs for, for the Democrats to have a consistent message through this. And let's just not assume we're going to win the political fight on this. We have to go out and actually fight it with some consistent yeah. messaging is what, what, I, what I would say. Uh, so do they even tell you what they want? What is the reason that they're shutting the government down? How did we get here? Yes, a What's couple thoughts on that. First, I mean, and Mitch McConnell has said this publicly. Um, he knows that he knows that history that we know, James, that over the right. last 30 years, government shutdowns don't help their side. However, the uh, MAGA Republicans who really run the House, because when they say jump, you know, uh, McCarthy's already hitting his head on the ceiling uh, trying to please them. They want the shutdown because they love this stuff. Matt Gates loves getting on TV. He loves the chaos. There's no policy agenda there. Right. He just likes clicks and he likes getting on cable news as much as possible. And the same with uh, enough people on their side that they can gin things up. That's why it took, hell, it took them 15 times just to elect their own guy to speaker. Something like that hadn't happened since before the Civil War. So it depends on which kind of Republicans you're talking about. The more professional types like McConnell, they know better. They know that this typically doesn't help them. But the people who are ultimately, in the end of the day, in charge of what happens in the House of Representatives, that crowd cares a little bit more about their own career and getting attention and causing chaos then they care about what's best for the Republican Party. So you, you know a lot of your colleagues on the side of the aisle. How many of them do you think truly believe this? And how many of them say, look, I, I got to go along with it. I'm dead. I don't have any yeah. choice. What, what, what do you think the ratio is? You, you don't you have know, to name any names. I, yeah, look, I, I have, um, I think Al knows this. I, I have a lot of good friendships on both sides of the aisle. A lot of folks who I get along with who are Republicans. And boy, I could fill a book 
over the last seven years of the things that they will say in private, whether it's about Donald Trump or about, you know, the extreme MAGA types they have to deal with versus then what they're actually willing to say in public. The reality is a ton of them know this is BS, but they're so afraid of the Republican primary voters. You saw after January 6th, McCarthy actually, you know, summoned up a little bit of a spine, a little bit of a backbone, actually stood up to Donald Trump. That lasted about a week. And then he was flying down to Mar-a-Lago to bend the knee. That's because the Republican primary base is with Trump and loves this nonsense and loves this stuff. They've been conditioned over 30 years by a right-wing media ecosystem to put them in that mindset. So a lot of the Republicans I talk to know this is not good for them. But, you know, the reality is they think each and every day about 80% of them are primarily concerned with their own primary electorate. Thank you, Albert. Let me pick up on that. You know people, you're close to some of the Republicans you're close to, or your neighbor, Brian Fitzpatrick, or Tom Keene, not far away in New Jersey. Can they vote? I mean, they may be afraid of primary, what, can they vote for these draconian cuts that Republicans are proposing? Well, I mean, I, so Brian Fitzpatrick is literally uh, my neighboring district and, and a good friend. We do a lot of stuff together. Uh, Fitz is in a, a unique position. He's one of about maybe six or so that are genuinely moderate. Um, and, you know, he's the Republican head of the, the Problem Solvers Caucus. They, he's in the kind of position where it, going along with draconian cuts does not help him uh, in, in any way, shape, or form. But for the vast majority of them, uh, they're much more focused on the primary electorate than the general. I will say, though, and again, speaking as a, a Democrat who very much wants to take back the House and think that we're slight favorites to do it, the seats we got to win, you know, the, Al, I love your phrase, and I, I uh, use it liberally, the timid 20 that mm-hmm. we have to target um, the 18 uh, House Republicans who are in districts Biden won, and then the two that only won by less than a point, the majority of them are in New York State and California State. Um, they know that a shutdown is, is not good for them. The challenge is, and this is where their so-called moderates are very different than ours. The folks on our side who are moderate, time and time again, stood up and asserted themselves in the two years uh, that we were in charge with President Biden. Boy, they're moderates. Um, they rarely speak out. They rarely stand up to their party leadership. They always go along. So if I'm betting in the end between the MAGA wing and the so-called moderate wing, it's the MAGA wing that's in charge over there. I'm a Democrat running in Long Island or running in California for some of those seats. Um, I would hope they do. Because, um, you know, I, I, I would guess they'd pay a price. I think some of the cuts, now, Brendan, you know this like the back of your hand, that the crazies are proposing well beyond the deal that McCarthy and others agreed yeah. to in the debt ceiling would really cut things like border control and veterans, things that they say they would never touch. Yeah, a 27% cut. So we're talking about millions of teacher jobs lost, especially in um, some inner city uh, neighborhoods, like some of the ones that are in my district. Um, by the way, on that part, the cut wouldn't be 27%, 80% of low-income public schools 
would suffer as a result. And that's just one of the things they would do. They talk about the border and they talk a great game. Uh, of course, you know, once they actually run the government, they don't do anything about it. We'd be cutting border agents left and right under their cuts. Um, so you can go on and on. I, I talked about this also on the floor. Federal work study program for college kids. I benefited from that as first my family to go to college, someone who needed a lot of student loans and work study and all that stuff to make it happen. 660,000 uh, work study jobs would be eliminated by their cut. So um, we're talking about uh, real stuff that they're proposing, and it is extreme to the max. Boy. Let me ask you one more before turning back to James. Nancy Pelosi was the strongest Democratic leader in my lifetime. That's a really tough act to yeah. follow. How is Hakeem Jeffries doing? Hakeem is doing well. Look, Hakeem and I are genuinely close friends. When I first got here in 2014, uh, he was only uh, one term ahead of me and uh, someone who we, we struck up a friendship and, and have been close friends ever since and was a strong supporter of him going for leadership. Um, uh, I, I think very highly of him. He's, he has a great ability to unite the different factions of our caucus. I will also say that, you know, the reality is, especially if you're a new leader succeeding someone who's a legend, uh, it helps to be in the minority. Yeah. Uh, even though I wish we're in the majority, let's face it, for that first term, succeeding someone like Nancy Pelosi, it does help to be in the minority structurally because all of our side is automatically united. Pelosi was in a minority her first two years, which I think she said, you know, was helped her uh, immeasurably. And you know, I just read, I didn't know this, I just read that Hakeem Jeffries' brother is a distinguished historian at Ohio State. I want to read a profile of that mother, that family, uh, because, man, talk about high-achieving kids. Uh, Al, just to be clear, while I'm happy to talk about Eagles or Phillies, given where that I'm a proud uh, alumnus of Notre Dame, there'll be no conversation about Ohio State on this podcast or in my office for the next year. Congressman, I have a question. Who is the winningest coach in the history of Notre Dame football? Yeah, I have a name. Still the top two in the history of no, college football are both Frank Leahy and Newt Rockney. Who won more two. games at Notre Dame than any other coach in history? I think I'm waiting for that. Oh, Brian Kelly didn't win Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Congressman. Thank you very much. Hey, so, James, right now in the AP, where I, I purposely looked at this, we are two spots ranked higher than LSU at this moment, by the way. Uh, you, you know, LSU doesn't <laughs> play for September football. We, we, we play for <laughs> December and January football. But that's all right. Well, yeah, we'll get you. So, so Congressman, I've I got to run after this. But I, I, first of all, thank you so much for, for being on the show. And, yeah, you know, I know your district really well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. i got a lot of relatives in Ireland, to say the least. I, I, I just want to end with, with just a, a piece of advice. Stand up in that caucus and say, we're going to have three people talk about this, and we're going to talk about these three things and nothing else. And three means three. Okay, that right. means three. You know, pick who you want. If I'm one of the three, fine. If I'm not, fine. And these are the three things that we're going to talk about because you just can't assume that we're going into this fight and we're going to end up where it always ends up. We, I, I, I think we got to pressure it, and I think we need concise, you know, repetitive messaging here. So I'll just leave you with that thought. 
and uh, then turn back to Al. But thank you so much for uh, for coming on the program. It really meant a lot to us. And uh, I, I love your districts. And I, I, I got to tell you, I'm starting to become more of a fan of the Phillies. They got a scrappy operation. Yeah. They went extra innings last night. They didn't win. They did win, and they clinched the playoff spot. Yeah, so they'll have okay. the number one seed for the wild card. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday next week are all the wild card games. So I'll be. I might be sitting here in my office watching it, but it's going to be, it's going to be great, uh, great playoffs. Hey, Brendan, I'm going to join James in thanking you. One of the reasons that Hakeem Jeffries is doing so uh, well is because he's got such a strong team with the Brendan Boyles with him. So uh, you, you, you know, you guys are given the fact that uh, you didn't want to be in the minority. You're doing a heck of a job. And my final thought: Go Eagles! <laughs> and you pronounced it correctly, Al. That's the. Uh... <laughs> The, the, the Philly roots are coming out, uh, are coming out there. I, look, I mean, we know how important 2024 is, and especially in my own state of Pennsylvania. I often say Pennsylvania is literally the biggest battleground state in the country. Uh, it was decided by half a point in 2016, decided by a percentage point in 2020. We'll be close again. And you can't, in this day and age, you cannot plausibly get to 270 electoral votes without the 19 electoral votes of Pennsylvania. No question. No question. I'm sure you'll help them get there. Thank you very much. And we'll also watch your Phillies in the playoffs. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you. Now, James, for the outrage of the week, I instinctively don't like gag orders. So I start off skeptical of special prosecutor Jack Smith's request of a gag order for Donald Trump. However, more than a little unsettling is a New York Times story this week detailing the threats being made against the judge in the Trump insurrection case, the prosecutors and FBI agents warning if Trump is convicted, we're going to kill you. FBI agents saying their kids are being threatened. The Trump prosecutors have to get round-the-clock security protection. This is all being inflamed by Trump, who seems to want violence. And James, isn't it strange that the most strident critics of the FBI today are MAGA Republicans, who I think are telling us the Bureau is a hotbed of radical leftists. Did you know that? No, I, I wouldn't know that. I, I think that the disproportionate number of FBI agents come from that radical left fringe group called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I, I mean, it's it's insane. But when again, the people that you're telling it to affirmatively want to be lied to, then it's going to be receptive. And I think the outrage is well founded. You know, I guess. I look at these polls, and I look at everything that we know about Trump. And see his polls consistently saying 47% of the people plan on voting for him. And I know you got to respect everybody and everybody's opinion, and I know that sometimes people get off-putting aromas that they think they're better than other people. But if you've re- this 48% of the people that I've run into – are going to be voting for this freaking treasonous criminal? Uh, I'm sorry. It just, 
it, it upsets me to no end. I can complain about Biden. You can complain about this. You can complain about that. But just remember, when you're in this country, there's a pretty good chance the next person you're going to run into is someone who plans on actively and joyfully voting for a treasonous criminal. And I just can't get rid of it. I can't get that out of my head. It's just, just I guess that's the country we live in. But it's, it's hard, to, hard to figure, man. It really is. I mean, it's just, it's not, you know, this is not concern. I, I understood why people voted for and actually revered Ronald Reagan, even if I disagreed with him. There was a consistency to it. It's what they believed in, really small government, tough defense, all that kind of stuff. Uh, the Trump uh, appeal, I, I, I get it. I know it plays to grievance. I've heard them. Uh, I even have a couple family members who fall in that category. But I got to tell you, deep down, I don't get it. You know, I think Reagan kind of, he, he gave you the impression that if you were a prejudiced person, he, he didn't judge you very harshly. <laughs> I'll say it as kindly as I can say it. If if you're a prejudiced person, Trump says, I, I wholeheartedly endorse the way you feel. And he gives prejudiced people not cover but aid and comfort for their for their bigotry. And then that's a ter- that's that's not a good thing to say the least. No. And you know, Reagan just kind of winked and said, yeah, I get it, I understand. You know, we can go to Philadelphia and open our campaign. And, you know, you don't think in the show of County Fair was about looking at the uh, livestock? Yeah, it was a, just, you know, we're talking about states' rights. All right, now for our listener questions. Chris in West Chicago, Illinois, James wants to know, Biden is letting the Republicans define him as a clueless, old, and feeble man to the electorate. Shouldn't he be going more in the offensive to generate clips for the news cycle to dis- disprove this notion, to show he still has the oomph to be president? Uh, but, but a great question, our friends from West Chicago. I, I, the question you got to ask yourself, can people be talked out of what they think about Biden? And, you know, if you try to make a good cut of him, showing some youth of vigor. And then I, I saw the picture in this morning's paper of him at the UAW strike where he, he looks old. I, I mean, the guy is going to be 81 in December. He's just old. He's so old because he is old. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I and I don't know that a TV spot can do much good, but it's as good as any other idea I heard. I agree. The next question comes from Linda in Holden, Massachusetts. Because I'm originally from Western Pennsylvania, I remain deeply interested in Keystone State politics. Now that David McCormick has entered the Senate race in Pennsylvania, how do things look for Bob Casey? I think David McCormick, who is a billionaire uh, who had heavy investments in China and elsewhere uh, and was from Pennsylvania originally but left, I think he would have beaten John Fetterman if he had been the nominee in 2022. Uh, I think he's going to find it's a different ball game uh, with Bob Casey. Um, I'll give you a sports analogy, James. In the 1960, the uh, Giants and the Eagles were going for the championship, the NFL championship for the, that division. 
and uh, the Giants were winning the first half, and Chuck Bednarik was playing linebacker. They put him in at center in the second half, and he looked up at Sam Huff and said, okay, the men are in now. Well, that's what Mr. McCormick is going to find with Bob Casey, and I'd bet on Bob Casey. Yeah, I, I, I do too. And I, McCormick looks better on paper. Uh, didn't actually, you know, he, he, he's he got to take all the Trumpian positions. He's trying, you know, Glenn Youngkin, he's trying to model himself after Glenn Youngkin. And, you know, Bob Casey just has a a, a really strong name. Uh, I, when your original thing about it, he would have beat Fetterman, I, I, I'm not sure, and it's the only reason I would say that is because Shapiro ran so far ahead of, ahead of Mastriano that taken a lot of ticket splitting for Fetterman, but it's... Wait a minute, I'm not sure, then. I just right. think McCormick, who I right. don't have... Right. It would, be a, would have been a stronger candidate, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't... I think he matches... He doesn't match up well with, with Senator Casey. I, I mean, there's, there's one name that says Pennsylvania's Casey, <laughs> say the least. I'm just pleased I could get Chuck Benarick in. There you go. James... Thomas in Cincinnati, Ohio, said, would you please break down in greater detail and specifics why you're so lukewarm in the vice president? Thomas wants to remind you that Harry Truman was sort of a placeholder and consider all that he accomplished. I, I don't know if that sound was lukewarm on the vice president. What I am is I'm lukewarm on her polling numbers. And that, you know, that may be a function, to be fair to Vice President Harris, it may be a function if her boss is at 41, well, by the laws of political gravity, she should, she can't be that. So she probably starts out with a, a very low ceiling and, and then goes from there. My, if I had any observation maker, anything critical to say, it would be that surprise me one time. Do something that I wouldn't expect you to do. And my, my, my problem with Vice President Harris is, is every cause you, you would expect her to be, and she's of course very big and it's a tremendous political benefit to the country, but she's very outspoken on, on reproductive issues. Well, that's good and no big surprise there. She was doing a GOTV tour of colleges with emphasis on historically black college universities. Great. It's a good, it's a good, good idea. It's a good plan. Not particularly surprising. And, you know, I wish she would go to some trade school and spend time with, you know, multi-ethnic welding students or something. You know, spend a day, have a morning working in a tire shop with some guys or something like that. I, I, I just think that they don't give, don't, they don't put her in a position to succeed. They put her in a position to be predictable. Yeah. You're not going to get ahead by being predictable. And just to affirm uh, those people who are already with him, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, I think it's been a rough ride for her. And I think some of the fault probably lies with her and her staff. But some of it lies with Biden uh, or Biden's staff. Yeah, you, you know, we knew that we know knew there was considerable trepidation about taking her, and that that apparently has some hangover effect. Yeah, Patrick in Long Island, James asked, when a treasonous fascist and wannabe dictator, former United States president, dies. Is it a requirement that a state funeral and all uh, be, is that the associated protocol? 
that has to be observed or is it left to the discretion of the current administration? I think we know who Patrick is talking about. I'm not totally sure. I think there is some protocol that requires some form of state funeral. You know, the only parallel was back when Nixon died in 1994. Uh, there was uh, a, a funeral in California and there was a great controversy. Bill Clinton went. And I think it was the right move. Uh, I think it helped uh, bridge, you know, some of the some of the healing. N N Nixon deserved his fate, James, but he was not four times indicted. He was not twice impeached, uh, and he looks a lot better than Donald Trump. So I think I don't know what kind of a funeral Donald Trump would have, but if I'm the president of the United States, uh, I ain't going. Yeah, I, I, I would add to our friends a good opening description of it, but I would add the career criminal in that. In that. Yeah, that, three times. That, that yeah, um, I, 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 I can't stand a man. I'll be honest with you, I don't know if I ever said this about another human being, but I don't think I'd be very distraught about his demise on anything financially or anything else. Uh, the division and the pain that he's caused people in this country is unimaginable. James, you know this subject. Gary in the West Texas oil fields. Uh, I don't know. He's probably near Lubbock. Uh, he says for decades, polling organizations use landline telephone numbers to approximate a random sample. It was obviously flawed, but the current model using online polling which not, you know, a lot, which is only some of the polling has obliterated the assumption of a random sample. Talking heads on both the left and right treat these polls like scripture. Why doesn't anyone challenge these polls when the media relies too much on them? They aren't much better than a coin flip for predicting future behavior, Gary says. Well, I got a, a, a few problems here. First of all, the media does obsessively you know, go back and say, were the polls right or were the polls wrong? Our friend is correct. They were off considerably in 2016. And frankly, they weren't that great in most places in 2020. I think Poland, by and large, had a good 2022 and, you know, pretty good on these specials. It's, uh, you know, the business changes. You know, we used to do landlines and you, and you do cell phones and you started doing these panels, uh, you, you can make some of this online polling be pretty, pretty accurate. I mean, it takes some rigmarole. You, you, you got to get the right people to do it. But they're keeping, I think the polling industry is, is challenging. The technology is challenging. The people don't want to talk about politics is challenging. But uh, to this day, I, what I look for is not one poll, but a consistency across a bunch of polls. And there are a lot of things this country is consistent on. Yeah, and polls uh, are, as you, if you read the fine print, they are 95% of the time within a margin of error, three or four. And that means 5% of the time they're not. I threw out one poll uh, at the Wall Street Journal. We had the best pollsters in the country, but we just thought it was in that 5%. There was one at Bloomberg I probably should have flown out, flown out, thrown out. Ann Selzer and I later agreed. Uh, I haven't seen the internals of the Washington Post poll last week, but it was an, an outlier. And, 
you know, if, if the internals were contradictory. Yeah, I looked at the internals are not that contradictory. Was, well, then maybe then, then if that's the case, you run it. But, uh, you know, at the Wall Street Journal, we had ones that were contradictory. But, yeah, that, you know, it was an outlier. That. And, but, you know, it was just three or four points. So they said nine. So maybe it was five. Uh, you know, who knows? Uh, Nick in Billings, Montana says, what if any dropout endorsement coalitions formed among the other candidates before Iowa could weaken Trump's position in Iowa and New Hampshire? Do you think that could um, affect him? I, I, I wouldn't look to Iowa. I'd look to New Hampshire. If Trump is going to be toppled, it'll, it'll be in New Hampshire. Not sure it'll happen, but uh, but that's where it, if it does happen, that's where it'll be. Well, he's going he's to have trouble in Iowa. He, he, he didn't win it the last time. And he... He's got trouble. He's at like 37, I thought. That's a crappy number for an incumbent president. Thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors, Miracle Made and Beam, in our show notes. We deeply thank you for supporting them because when you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also find other shows you might enjoy on the Politicon YouTube channel or when you search Politicon on your favorite podcast sites. Remember, please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning.